Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. This is going to be awesome. My name is Matt Miller. This is Grayson Gilbert. And I'm Matt Henry. (laughs) So make that noise you were just making. Yeah, he's doing that by smacking his cheek with his fingertip. I can't make that noise. All I do is hurt my cheek. We all learned it from Ferris Bueller's day off. I'm not sure I ever. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever saw that show. Probably best I didn't. Anyhow, we are here together, and we're gonna do another hot topic. Aren't you supposed to play the? Yeah, yeah, yeah but I didn't bring it the, up. Uh, so the ding. I don't have it. So get right. over it, guys. Let's, uh, it's been a long day. I'm all done. Get my house prepared. He does. He does it one time. The victim over here. I am. Yeah. It's uh, where are you intersecting right now? <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere between middle-aged and marginalized. <laughs> you invited him. I see. The problem is his mouth starts going, and then my mouth wants to go, and there's no good thing that will come from any of it. So. We are going to just focus on one subject on the hot topic, um, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, It's the issue of parachurch and the parachurch organizations. What are some that you know of? Just I I I I grew up in the seventies where the parachurch was really big, and so I I have a whole day. I like. I have groups that I think of, yeah. and and I ask you, Matt. Hey, have you ever heard of these? And you just said nope. Hmm. So, well, you got like university. You got crew, which I was believe campus used to be crusade. campus crusade for Christ. Um, you got YWAM. Yeah. Well, that's hard for me to say. YWAM, a, a YWAM. youth with on a mission, or youth with a mission. Y W A M. You've never heard of them? No. Oh, they're they're going wacky. Well, um, but what are some that are you guys ones, think yeah. of? So, are you talking broadly? Like, yeah, you know, Voice if of the Martyrs would be one. Farce, vo- farce. <laughs> um, International Justice Mission, I think, is another. And then you've got um, the I, rescue missions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a ton of them. Care, care net would be one. Care, well, the, and this is how it kind of started was um, you and I were driving through town. You used to be what? The managing director or something like that? Yeah. Of of the care net in town, and uh, our church was heavily involved in that. And then through just decisions uh, made by the board, you know, it, it be, and they brought on a new executive director, and, and he started going hard on, you know, fundraising tech techniques and tactics and stuff like that. But we, we finally ultimately determined that we couldn't be part of it anymore. And that was sad because we were, we were really invested. How many years? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't. It was, 
I mean, it was something that it was since a long we time. were even at the church. So, I mean, we've been here what a 10, 11 years now. Yeah. I mean, since the beginning, it was a thing. Yeah, and it was well before that. So we were heavily invested in that, and then um, it, it it just went a different way. And w- you were just wondering, is it even open in our town? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, it's completely gone off the radar for us. But that then led to me just talking about uh, wanting to do this because I— just for people to think about it, um, the value, you know, especially how many people love parachurch organizations. See, I'll throw out a few more like Grace to You, um, Ligonier, uh, the White Horse Inn, uh, Apologia Radio. Anything you know. that you would give your money to that's not yes. your local church. Yes. And, and, and also anything. So, uh, somebody might say faith and fable, but nobody gives us money. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> We run in the red anyway with our mugs. Yeah. Yeah, I found uh, several of them arrived broken. So I'm yeah. like, <sighs> but anyhow. You sell those bad boys at a discount. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think, but you can't. Um, so uh, my, my question to you guys is, are they good, bad, or are you uncertain about Especially, I'm thinking about you, Matt, as a, yeah. y- a young pastor, pastoring your own church. And have you had any where the any situation yet where somebody's come in and they're heavily involved and invested in a parachurch organization, or not yet? No. You will. Um, no, I have not at ours. I my time at Carnet uh, shaped my thoughts on parachurch ministry a lot. Um, so I keep, I may, that, I may be that, biased and skewed. No, I, uh, I think that you're, but getting, I also you, got a lot of, I thought in insight in, in, into the nature of what parachurches are and how they operate. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's cautioned me, I, I it's cautioned me to slow down anytime anyone brings something before me to say, Hey, have you thought about, it's like, well, no, I haven't. <laughs> right, but, but because I have. Uh, so, so would you be comfortable in talking? I mean, about just how you got involved in CareNet, and sure. and then well, and and then as you moved up and started being involved and had a leadership level, decision level, you know, how how you started to see how things functioned or could function, unfortunately. Yeah, so I got involved with CareNet because uh, we one of the elders here at the time was president. Um, and for the people who don't know what CareNet is, it's a um, like a pregnancy resource center for for women and families. Right. Uh, it, it was originally started to uh, combat, uh, you know, fight against uh, Planned Parenthood. So, sp- tech, you know, typically, if you go into a town, if you find where the Planned Parenthood is, you will not be probably far from a care net so they strategically position themselves they try to near it and so it was a its purpose was a good purpose absolutely Uh, let's offer an alternative where people in crisis uh can go and 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 we can show them a different way it started in kenosha by a group of pastors no way Um, Hmm. i mean you have care net national but every care net it's kind of like the southern baptist they're they're their own autonomous uh, 
entity in that local place. I didn't know that. Yeah. So what you can do is you can become a CareNet, which means that you can, you pay a fee and then you receive all the resources and training and stuff like that. Uh, so what it does is they, they'll do pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, and then they'll have programming to help moms for two or three years with learning how to be a mom. And they offer Bible studies, those kinds of things. Um, so my perspective on it was, I, one, it's a great work um, in that you're, you're helping defend innocent lives. Uh, but for me, uh, if the, if the ultimate goal is not the gospel, then it's just a social work. It's a good social work, but that is not the end all if, if you're a Christian. Uh, so I wanted, I went in there with a lot of hope and thinking that the gospel is going to be strong and be present unbeknownst to me. It's an event, it's an evangelical organization unbeknownst to me. It's primarily staffed by Catholics, which makes sense. They're very pro-life and they were some of my best staff frankly. Um, and, and yet no gospel. Right. Um, and so my, my experience at CareNet was good and bad. Um, I really enjoyed my time with clients. And so personally what I was able to do is, I mean, I was bringing the gospel regularly. Uh, I had a lot of good volunteers who also did. Now you also learned and maybe that's the wrong choice, but you also got good at giving the gospel because of that, right? Because you were you had to simplify it, you had to bring it out of a seminary classroom kind of place where you're discussing the subtleties of the gospel and just what is the gospel? Well, the nature of the client, I mean, you couldn't even use the word gospel because the nature of the clientele, when you would say gospel, they thought you're talking about a category of music. I mean, they, there's, right. you know... Um, so, but yeah, I was thankful for that time because it really helped me learn to communicate it well to different kinds of people. Um, so the, the longer I was in CareNet, though, the more I started making observations and noticing things and questioning things. And what was interesting to me is it, the one in Kenosha, at least, has been around for 30, 35 years. Um, and the policy and procedure manual was thicker than most medical offices which blew my mind. That's crazy. Because um, it goes all the way back to the 80s. And every time you have a new director, whether it's an executive director, board of directors, um, client directors, whatever, it, it got added to or changed or nuanced. And so you got this unwielding, massive tome of policy and procedures that frankly contradict themselves. Well, and I'm sure nobody even knows what's in there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I, I literally read through that whole thing and would regularly bring things to the board and I got typically met with shrugs. My problem with, bottom line with those kinds of things is the, the way your classic 501c3 works is you have a board of directors who are utterly disconnected from the floor, so to speak, um, the client side of things. Right. And it has... Boy, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush here, but it has been my experience that many board of directors don't actually care that much. They don't care. In, they, they might believe in the cause, but they don't care enough to get their hands dirty or go above and beyond having to just show up and make a decision. In fact, I disconnected from anything going on. I know that I, I don't want to say for care net with your board, but I know that in many boards like that, um, like we we were part of a uh, we we got involved on the ground floor of a 
missions mm-hmm. agency that we backed completely out of as well. Um, but they had, I knew some of the board, board of directors, but I also knew that they only heard from the president of the ministry, nobody else, and they were completely disconnected. But for some of some people, they are on a board to pad their resume. Absolutely. It, right? It's important. Yeah. I'm on I function on five different boards and blah, blah, blah. And and it gives on paper at least the impression that wow, these guys are really out there interacting on all these awesome mm-hmm. activities. But um, in fact, they're really just making basic decisions based on the information that's being fed to them, and they don't have even the means to discern whether or not those are factual. Yeah. What struck me odd is how many times I was not asked, not because of me, but just the position I was in, I was not asked for um, my perspective of what was going on on the floor, Uh, because I oversaw two locations, uh, one in Kenosha and one in Racine. and what is the day-to-day like? What has been your interaction with the clients? Uh, what are the needs? What are the problems? Things like that. Um, so you'd have people come into a board meeting. Uh, they'd meet with the executive director, who also was all the executive directors that were there in my time had very little knowledge of what was really going on on the floor as well. But they're the ones controlling the money, that, which is the point here. Um, so everything is geared toward how can we present things to be a certain way so that donors will give, <laughs> regardless of what's actually happening. So if you look at the statistics at the number of minds that were changed from, I'm going to have an abortion to I'm going to choose life, they're clueless. Um, and the statistics, I mean, you can make them say what you want anyway. Uh, so that, that was troubling to me. Uh, I'd have a couple of clients who'd come in and they were wrestling with the decision, for example, um, on what they're going to do. And so I was, we were making good progress with them and just trying to care for them. Well, someone on the board or the exec, executive director would get wind of that. So then what was my job? You make certain that client gets in here so that we can get them on video and use them as a picture of what we're doing. And then we're going to play this video at our annual dinner where we're raising Which thousands actually thousands of actually happened. It did. And it, it, I, was, I was angry sitting in that room as I'm watching this woman who I knew personally, I knew her burdens, I knew her what her life was like. And I'm seeing her being used as a means through which you can gain money merely so that you can keep this thing called CareNet moving. Yeah, and and what angered me, because I remember that, was that her story had nothing to do really with CareNet. Um, They had taken, she was talking to some other connected ministry at a local church, um, and they paid her money, uh, that ministry money, if I remember correctly, so that they could use her and and present her story in the video and have her stand up at the comp, the the what do you call it the meal the banquet banquet, banquet yeah. yeah and everyone's just giving her just an ovation of wow this is why we gather and it's like not, no it, but <laughs> right. but the impression was there and nobody had the ability to it know. makes donors feel really good hey this is what we're giving our money for we're doing good work here. 
And it's, I'm, I'm looking around at a room full of four or 500 people and I'm like utterly clueless. They're all clueless as to what is really happening. And it's sad and a giant waste of money is what it comes down to. Yeah, I remember actually being there and I'm literally finding out about this now. Oh, <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, huh, well, that stinks. Yeah, that was the breaking point for I, for me. I went back to the elders and I'm like, I, I, I'm having some real problems here. And well, well they yeah. also had started that uh, wall of, you could, you know, oh, yeah. The heroes of the of, champions of, of life. Yeah. If you gave $5,000, you were then a champion for life. If you gave 1000 you were a hero for life. And if you gave 500 you were an uh, advocate for life. Or advocate. Yeah. And I'm just, and I, but uh, what I did was I looked around at our church. We were the largest source of revenue for that place. And none of our people would qualify for any of those. And yet, as as a church, they were sacrificially giving and serving. Um, but it's like you're now creating— a, Well, what you have it, with parachurch, it, yeah, these types of things is something called mission creep. And that is, we're going to establish this 501c3. Here's going to be the purpose and the goal, usually at the vision of a person who becomes the executive director. They establish for themselves a board— um, and they start moving. Well, as years go on and issues ebb and flow and change, so does the mission. And then eventually an exec the executive director signs off, goes away, so they have to hire somebody else, but you still have this board, board members are coming and going. And so now the whole thing is a completely different entity than what it originally set out to be. And then as mission creep happens, um, so does the vision. And so you have to keep morphing and changing just to keep this organization alive. It's like, well, this issue is not as big of an issue as it was in the 80s. So now what else can we do? Or how, what more can we do? And now you're comp a completely different reality. Would any of you say that the, in, the initial intention and purpose of the CareNet ministry was, was bad? No. No, I think it was a great intention. Yeah, I would too. What about you, Matt? Well, of course. Okay, yeah. but but then what you? I mean, you were actually quite a way high up there. You were watching that mission creep take place, and you also saw then power struggles, right? Oh, yeah. um, you know, as because you have these various churches and they're wresting control. We had a lot of influence there, and and then with leadership changes, we were essentially cut out of that influence, which was. I, I want to make clear that's the freedom of that organization. They, I mean, they're not accountable to us. So if they want to cut somebody out, or and that that's their right. But at some point, then we as a church had to say, can we, in good conscience, say we we support this? Well, they're, the, yeah, they're not accountable to us, but there's a fiduciary responsibility to your donors of this is what they think they're giving money for, but here's what's not yeah. happening, mm -hmm. and then also is happening. And that was absolutely what was happening with CareNet. The entire thing was about how many diapers can we collect so we can just keep giving away free diapers and clothes. And it had very little to do anymore with uh, pro-life in the sense of helping fight against abortions. Um, and more importantly, had very little to do with the gospel. 
I mean, that was, yeah. it was virtually absent. Yeah. I remember having the dinner with you where I offered you full time finally, because you were able to work their part and we were able to pay you part time. Um, and then finally, we were able to bring that. But well, this is all really your fault anyway. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it usually <laughs> is. We, we, we want to plant a church, but we're not ready and we can't support you, so go find a job. <laughs> and then Love you. <laughs> and then we don't know if anything's going to happen anyway. So, yep. but, uh, and, now, I, and now, tell me, who is in that new position? That, uh, that would be me. <laughs> Bingo. It's <laughs> such yeah. a verbatim discussion we had. <laughs> What with Matt and I over lunch one day, where he's just like, "We have no idea if this can even happen, but we'd like to make that happen." And I'm like, "Sold." <laughs> ah. And now we still have no idea, but we're trying. We'll see. Well, yeah, Lord willing. Um, so let me give another example. Uh, for, I won't get. I won't say the name. I, I don't see a need there. Um, but I was friends close friends with a man that we met. Uh, I, I heard him preach at Piper's pastor's conference on missions, and I, I heard a man who was from an African nation who had a theology of missions that fit with mine, and he, but he said it better. So we had him to our church, and I wanted him to share it to the church because I, I felt our church was not missions-oriented. The church fell in love with him, and he and I became very close friends. And um, he was in an African nation teaching as a theological seminary. So we would travel. I would go over there and teach seminary courses, and we also made him one of our—we uh, made we made him our missionary. We also supported students there. The politics of that, at Africa is a hard place to minister. Um, things started happening— over the years that ultimately he had to quit and he came back to the United States. Um, and he got connected up with this, uh, a, a man had a vision for training uh, pastors overseas who couldn't afford the theological education um, and that we could do it for free. Uh, we would send people there. And I was big on that. I was really big on, let's train the indigenous guys. Uh, you can do, they can do far more with much less money. Um, and uh, he he had that vision, but he couldn't get it going. Um, and this other friend of mine, he had the theological know-how. And so he was became the curriculum writer and that's what started this thing. It was just those two guys, and we were, um, and I was along for the ride. So I, I went with this man. We went to Brazil and Cameroon and uh, Romania, Greece, all, all over the place, and we trained pastors. Well, that 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 ministry started to take off, and you you got to become part of that and go on those trips as well and but it was always done a certain way because i was in on it before it actually existed um and what we started to see was mismanagement of funds like they would say you can't book your own flight you have to do it through us and now all of a sudden that flight that you could get was $1300 now all of a sudden it's $3500 and it's it's a worse flight and you're like why? And you can't, uh, you, we have to go through their people, and, and all of a sudden, while well, there's these fees, and you find out, what you find out is things they're not telling you. Um, so when you and I were in Greece at one time, 
you know, I we shared this tiny, tiny room, if you remember. Apparently, that's where you learned I snored. Um, sorry. Yes. Um, and <laughs> I went downstairs, and I just asked the front desk, so how much does this room cost a night? And it was 25 bucks American a night. And I looked at how much you and I were being charged, and we were being charged something like almost 200 a night through the ministry for each night there. And that's where things started unraveling, where we started realizing that large sums of money are flowing in, all claiming to go um, for the training of the pastors. But in fact, it's not. It's going for all sorts of other things, but there is no accountability. Um, and I began to press and push and basically made myself persona non grata. And I ultimately, we as a church, pulled out and broke from them. By that time, though, we had made some connections, and so you and I have been able to continue training pastors, but within the local church context. But yeah. again, there was another example of there was no accountability. There there was, I think, the mission creep, like you said. Um, and well, yeah, my position on those is I don't, I, I wouldn't have a problem if there's, if they said it's going to be 200 a night. Yeah, we and we we made that clear. We kept saying, "Just tell us." Yeah, it, it, the lack of transparency was the issue, right? And and you find out. I mean, it ha because where else would it be? It's going towards other causes with which weren't even necessarily bad things. It's just why don't you tell us that's where the money is going and how it's being used? Yeah, I would even be sympathetic to it. Yeah. Yeah, we, our church has always been an extremely generous church for missions kinds of things. It just if there's a need, just tell us. Uh, in fact, we just recently sent a nice check to uh, our translator in Ethiopia. Um, did you know about that? Yeah, and then remind me, I got to talk with you about okay. that. Okay, and uh, to help him build his house uh, because he was losing the home he was living in, and we were able to help. Um, the church was happy to do that. So he, all of that to say, that's why we're going to talk a bit about just parachurch and, and have, have the people understand what, if they're involved in a parachurch, if they're contributing to parachurch, serving in a parachurch, there might be some things that they ought to inquire about. Um, the parachurch ministry has been around for a long time, but in the 70s, it seemed to become a really big deal. And a lot of it had to do with the institutional churches had just sort of stopped doing things. And people started having a burden for like a, a famous one was called the Navigators. Have you heard of them? I have. Really? Yeah, I've heard of it, but I don't really know what they do. Okay, and you hadn't heard of them. And it's a disciple. it was a discipleship ministry, and the guy was a sharp guy. And it was, we need to be tr discipling people growing them in their faith so that they can give away their faith. And it was very heavy in the discipling. So you would be discipled by this guy, and then you would in turn be discipling others. So it was very good in that way. The problem was the churches weren't discipling anyone. And so you were just attending church, doing your thing. Um, as it developed, though, what happened is if you got involved in the navigators, um, you you it became all-encompassing. Your whole life became the navigators. And so you were memorizing verses, you were sharing your faith and everything else, but it was all for the navigators and not for the local church. And so you ended up robbing the local church of 
I hate to call it, but just talent. These people are committed, they're they're diligent, they're growing, but all of their time, energy, and funds are heading in. And then the mission creeps kicks in too. Um, once, especially once the uh, the leader dies, you know, you still have this ministry, and it's got a it it doesn't want to die. So um, that that has how many of them develop. Others develop like Grace to You. Uh, when I w- worked at Grace Community Church, it was part of Grace Community Church. And then I was there when they split off and became their own separate entity. And there was reasons for it. I don't even think bad. I think it's still a great ministry. I think it'll be interesting what it will look like after John dies. You know, uh, you still have that massive repository. You guys ever hear J. Vernon McGee and the Walk Through the Bible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful thing. But he's been with the Lord for a long time. I did. I just found out that it's still going, and they're still pulling donations and stuff. And um, I'm not, again, saying those things are wrong, but uh, Ligonier Ministries, that's not a church. Um, yeah. White Horse Inn, a lot of these things can take up a lot of people's energies and times. Um, and over time, how about Bill Gothard and the basic life conflicts? That was huge in the 60s and 70s. You guys know of him? I know very loosely of Gothard. Um, I know he went off the rails. Oh, he's been off the rails yeah. forever. Um, and advanced, oh, I can't even remember what their homeschooling stuff is, but uh, it, it came into our church here, and it was very problematic again. Um, they tend, when, when, when over time, the problem with the parachurch organization is that they tend to move one way or the other. They either become very legalistic and authoritative or authoritarian, and that's what happened with the Gothards, um, or they start to move leftward. And I think uh, a, a perfect example of that today would be together. Is it together for the gospel, TGC? The Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition. Yeah, yeah. T4G is like an offshoot of TGC, I think. Yeah, so TGC, the Gospel Coalition. I mean, there's still some wonderful men in there, but my goodness. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, it's a, it's a business now, and, and so they constantly have to drive for clip, clicks and everything else, and, and all this material's in there, and then their effort to try to promote something what they've actually done is they've really abandoned what their original purpose was, which was let's all, even though we're of different denominations and point, points of theology, we all agree on the gospel. Let's celebrate that. Let's discuss that and develop it. And now you've got articles like, would, what would Jesus deconstruct? And it's like, what What does that have to do with the gospel? And Yeah, one's been kind of, so my old professor who I love, Carson was a founder of it. Yeah. Yeah. And if if you listen to him talk, he talks about I mean the the purpose of the Gospel Coalition originally I I think was good. I absolutely I think most parachurch yeah, organizations he said, are. You know, with TGC, most ministries are boundary set models. That is, we're gonna be a ministry based on here's what we believe. And these are the boundaries, the parameters. We don't go outside that. He said, what if we switch to a centered set model where it's the gospel is what's central, but that's all we're going to be about. Because what he was doing as a professor on a campus is he'd be going to seminary students who are training for the pastorate, and he'd say, hey, can you tell me the gospel? And they couldn't. 
to which I'm like, well, then how did you admit them? But <laughs> <laughs> to, to your school, but he, he realized it was a problem and they all knew what it was. They just couldn't communicate it. And they were poor at uh, working the gospel into the culture and how it was supposed to shape and define all of ministry. But it, it's, you know, now it's been 15 years and it's morphed into this essentially a social work yeah, um, yeah. where you are getting articles like that and you're having a terrible theology. Absolutely. Um, but so, that's where you saw the mission creep there, yeah, right? Yep. And, yeah. And they have massive donors that they're um, accountable to. And so I, I see it in seminaries. What are some of the seminaries you've seen maybe that you're concerned with? I, if your seminary is not connected to the local church, even if it's a denominational one, and that's how they usually are, um, what are some things you've seen problematic within the seminaries that we would call seminaries, happy, good seminary, or they were? I mean, much the same where, you know, they start off as good, solid institutions, and then they they start embracing various doctrines that are contrary to what they founded on. So I think of like Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, even my old school, Moody, right? So when I was wrapping up at Moody, they had all sorts of different controversies that were coming out um, regarding social justice. And um, I think even some of the people that were high up in the organization were embezzling. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. It was a mess, right? But they they in, they instilled a new guy, and I know nothing about him besides that he's got a kind of a mega church in the Illinois area. And so it, it from what I could gather, much of his stuff as a president, um, he, he was kind of that inch deep, mile wide type of church where mm. they appeal to the masses on it. And so I look at my old school and I'm like, I can't confidently recommend I'd send a guy there or even within uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, right? With all the stuff that's come out in the past couple of years, you have guys like Jarvis Williams and others who are integrating um, critical race theory into their syllabus. Right. And they were a great school. You know, Al Moeller did a tremendous work to turn them around from where they were, where they almost died as a seminary. And now much of that same shift or, or uh, fade, if you will, is happening now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, your seminary was? Trinity. Right. Uh, Trinity down in Deerfield, right? Yeah. I, I think of the, the like uh, Southern, they still have some wonderful guys like uh, Don Whitney, yep. Tom Schreiner, um, Bruce Ware. Uh, there's some really good guys in there. And so they're in that weird in-between where you, on one level you can say, man, there's just such a repository of wisdom. And yet you're seeing the new crowd coming in mm -hmm. and you're seeing – this is problematic, and and but a lot of times they seem to say, well, yeah, but we still have these guys, and no, 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 everything's fine. But it's like, no, they're getting old. Well, that was that, that's exactly what happened to Trinity, and I was there. I I describe it as I, f I feel like I was there on that with that last old guard. They're all either have died or they've retired, and I yeah, remember you, you, your advanced Greek was who Carson. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, the. The final couple of years I was there, you you had these young new professors coming in that it was interesting to see all the students flock to them. And I remember being in a class. Um, it was a PhD seminar on um, Pauline theology. 
And I remember there was one point in the class where the professor said, hey, can you shut the door? Um, and he had a student stand up and shut the door because he was about to say some things he knew that if some people had heard would cause some concern. And not in a good way. Right. And, and then he starts talking and he's got the minds of these young MDiv students, PhD students. Um, so you have these, these young sophomore professors coming in who want a seat at the table, which is what I think happens with most, like what happened with Fuller, right? Yeah. Um, it's, you, you want a seat at the table with secular scholarship. And so you start debating and quibbling with certain ideas and pretty soon your seminaries in liberalism yeah. and it's no longer a... Well, we were super blessed with a friendship with a... Uh, uh, John Feinberg, Dr. Feinberg, and he's another guy. He's retired now from there. And I, I, my heart broke when he left because he, he was such a godly man and a learned man and a faithful man, right? And, and yet you were saying that you could see the mindset of many of the students kind of looked at him as just some old um, dinosaur of a guy and not really a guy to be listening to. He's not, you know, right. he's not where we're at. And and we're like, that's the guy you should all be sitting at yeah, yeah. and listening. Even if you walk away, like uh, there's points I would not agree with them, uh, but not in the sense that they would be troubling. I mean, we've had him as a guest speaker at our church many times, and he was ju he's just a blessing. Um, but you see that, yeah, you see that passing of the old guys and the new people are coming in and with yeah. it, they're bringing their... One academic the, yeah, ideas. And some of the things, one of the things that made me sad is, and I don't pretend to understand the politics of seminaries, especially denominational seminaries and the, the kinds of things that they have to do to make certain people happy. Uh, but I remember my final year as an MDiv student, um, because I was one of the, the fi final year students, they said, hey, uh, we're revising our MDiv curriculum. Uh, we're going from 104 credits to 88 or 86 or something like that. So they were literally cutting out, an, I mean, a serious amount of classes. Oh, yeah. And so they said, so which ones would you get rid of if you had to go back and do your MDiv again? And me being, I was, I'd get rid of the counseling and the so, yeah, social and cultural exegesis and yeah. where you're, I had to write a paper one time on, uh, bodybuilding. I remember that. For seminary. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I remember that. At $615 a credit? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's money spent because, But well. the social exegesis, you know, it's just good yeah. grief. Um, but what did they eliminate? They the eliminated your languages. Yeah, they did the and same the thing things, at Moody. Yeah, where you're, the, things, the, the very thing I went to seminary for, which was to get equipped with how to handle the Word of God. But instead, you're getting these classes that mean nothing. And now people are getting commissioned to go be pastors because they wrote a paper on bodybuilding. Well, and then you and a couple of another couple men from our church who are no longer with our church, but they went and took a homiletics class with you, and the kind of sermons that were coming out of these students, you know, who are now trained and they're supposedly ready to be preaching. They were horrendous, horrendous, not dealing with the text at all. And yet <laughs> I remember because you had what you had to do was on Tuesdays, uh, you had your 
Greek exegesis, I think it was two or three, I couldn't remember which one I'm in. And then on Thursdays, you now had to take your exegesis and turn that into a homiletical or sermon outline. And then you had to present the outline hmm. to the class. Well, on Tuesday, I think we were exegeting through Colossians or something like that. And it was Paul's prayer, Romans, or Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And you had Which to, is your, I think your favorite passage, right? Or one of your favorites. Well, yeah, it was one of my first that I really had to just tear apart. Um, so you have your main verb, and then your main verb is uh, modified by four participles. So your homiletical sermon's really easy. It's a four-point sermon. Um, and I remember one student who seriously struggled in Greek, and he, not for lack of effort. I mean, he really tried, and you could see him just in anguish over, <laughs> I don't understand. Um, <laughs> it's Greek to me. <laughs> and it, it, I actually felt bad for him. And then I stopped feeling bad for him because then when I had to present my sermon, uh, I gave four points, which were the four participles. And he said, so where did you get those four points from? And I said, from the text. And well, where? And I said, well, the, the participles. So why are those going to be your four points? I'm like, were you not in exegesis on Tuesday? What the text says. Um, <laughs> but there's this disconnect. Yes. And, and he was also a very good communicator. So when he gave his sermons, he would stand up there and it wouldn't even be remotely tied to a text. He would just be charismatic off the cuff. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. And his sermons were intriguing to listen to because of his personality, but I did not walk out having at all understood the text in the way that he presented right. it. Yeah. So, but that's the kind of thing that. Well, I had the same thing in my classes. So. Uh, I remember Hebrew exegesis, right? So same same principle, but a lot of the time we went into different genres of literature like you just have, but we were going through Hebrew narrative and um, we did the story of David and Goliath, right? And I can't <laughs> tell you how many people, because Hebrew narrative works the same way every single time. The moral of the story, if you will, is always at the end of Hebrew narrative. And so at the end of David and Goliath's story, it's about God having the victory. He is the one that provided strength. It's a shame to uh, the gods of the Philistines, all that. But what came out of it were probably a good 10 to 15 sermons that were all about battling your inner, you know, turmoils yeah. and, you know, taking the strength of David for yourself. None of it was about God. And then we had to interact with peers on it too. And I was a curmudgeon. And I was just like, this is literally not what the text says. And uh, my professor even gave me a mild rebuke. He's like, you're not wrong per se, but uh, we should allow people to have their creative freedom as they're working through their sermons. And I, I remember just being, I think you and I actually talked about that, Matt. Yep. We're at lunch and I'm like, at what point will we just train guys to look at the text and develop everything from the text? Yep. And then we wonder why so many churches have the problems that they do. Yeah. It, it, it's very, very common. And now, and now, of course, we'll get a few people send us the little meme with Matt Chandler saying, you're not David. Yeah. Um, but but yet, yet, if you listen to his sermons, his mission creep is the same thing. It's not tied to the text. It's tied to I, the culture. Yeah, with him, I really, I used to enjoy him. I did back too. in like 08, 09. Yeah. Um, I think you sound like him. I think you have his preaching uh, Cadence. gravitas. I, I really think you are a gifted preacher and um, more gifted than I am. And um, 
Well, well, but, thanks. but well, I yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but I, I like, yeah, awkward compliment, <laughs> awkward receipt. Yeah, but, I don't like deflect. <laughs> um, don't need to hang on though. Let, let me sorry. congratulate you some more. Um, but what I've appreciated with you is that you do carry with you that burden to bring the text. And I, I ultimately realized that somewhere, I don't know what happened, but he be, it began to shift. And I think it's when the church exploded and it was so big, and now it took on the energy beyond just getting up and being a faithful purveyor of the word. The text, but yeah. But anyhow. Yeah. So his stuff, I, I do not, and I have not for a long time followed his ministry, but every once in a while I'll get a clip or something that comes my way. And it's very psychologized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's purely about you and what God wants to do in you and with you. And it's all about you, you, you. That's um, interesting considering he is the guy who said, you're not David. Well, that was going to be my point. I mean, Sorry, there's some irony there. Yeah. Thanks, Grace. Um, <laughs> this is why you invite me. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but but to the to the parachurch stuff, what you have in seminaries, though, is I was, I was taken aback when I was asked that. Because then I posed the question, not knowing anything about um, why you would revise an MDiv curriculum. It's in the literally the words said to me was because we're no longer competitive. Hmm. Because people are looking for, they want the MDiv. What's the least amount of work and the least amount of time I can do it in so I can just get out and do what I want to do. So now they're following suit to all these other seminaries that are 86, 88 a credit. And now you got places like Midwestern where you can get in the Spurgeon program, apparently a, a full undergrad and a full MDiv in five years, Yeah, which is insane to me. It's like you're, you're missing something. If you, if you can do a full undergrad and a full MDiv in five years. It reminds me of a guy that was at our church for a while. Um, I remember him asking me, he's like, how do you, how do you learn Greek? without really learning Greek was his basic question. I'm like, well, you memorize paradigms and vocabulary and the rules of the grammar. You don't sleep for four years. Yeah, it's like you, you literally just put in the work. And he's like, oh, so there's no quick fix to get around that. I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. we've talked a lot, and it's in part why one of our dreams down the road is to have some kind of institute that's once again based from the local church yes versus outsourcing that to the quote professionals who are no longer doing the good stuff they used to do yeah yeah in fact just that outsourcing triggers a, another thought um we have several local churches that are larger um and they they'll do pastoral counseling as long as it's fairly minor but they will. I mean, I, I actually had a, a senior pastor tell me that we don't want to get too much involved in that because it it's tiresome, it's burdensome, uh, it, it can become a time suck, and so we outsource to a local Christian counselor, and that this local Christian counselor is not maybe a Christian, but is not a biblically based, theologically astute in any way, and so you're. You're sending your people over there to get the real problem fixed by a real professional. And again, it's just it, wh whether people grasp it or not, there's this idea that the Word of God and the church is not sufficient to meet people where they're at, no matter. And they say, well, yeah, but these are extreme situations. It's like, how? Any more extreme than a demoniac being 
cast into fire and you know what yeah what is your you know, ultimately you know why are you off loading things that that's what a shepherd does he doesn't yeah i, I remember time and time again because trinity is very integrative in their yes. uh, yeah. approach to counseling which means they integrate bible with psychology psychological yep. approaches yeah, psychoanalytical approaches um, and so the, the, the old adage time and time again is the pastor's for the soul, the psychologist is for the mind, and your physician is for the body. And it's like you, you deny the very that theology. Good, but yeah, it, yeah. It denies the very theology you just taught in systematics, which is you're a holistic being, and you can't actually separate those things. But we're going to outsource them to – but then at the end of the day, who wins? The professional. Yeah. Always. Um, so, so your, your pastors, you're, you're training the people in your church to view your pastor and the scriptures as somehow tertiary, less well, than. And then you get the docent, mm -hmm. which one day we'll just totally up, go off on that. But docent is now a parachurch organization that supplies exegetical and sociological material to the pastors for a fee, which is why so many of these men that are more prominent – they all tend to sound alike because they're all buying the same material and they get this pack and then they craft their sermon off it. But it's all of the same illustrations and and points and whatnot. Um, and so now, but their argument, the docent argument is we do, I, I, I can't remember the phrase if you remember it. It's something like we do the heavy lifting so you can go about the task of building the church. Yeah, and it's that see the pastor's job is to build the church. That's such an American mindset. Um, Christ will build his church. He, he overtly said so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, our job is to be faithful under shepherds, but instead it's all about getting the vision, the brand, the uh, all of that and then we'll have these people supply us our theology. And so now you have essentially empty pulpits uh, with empty heads. They become like uh, news anchors. They're just talking heads. Um, that, that Their whole point is, look, here's where I'm trying to take the church, and docent will now uh, craft material that will help you do that, um, rather than just that simple weekly feeding of the flock from pa faithful pastors who, who care um, the shame of it too is, you know, the pastor fails to see preaching as a primary task of shepherding. Yeah, yeah, which was my non-negotiable a couple of weeks ago. That I, I uh, biblical convictions, a pastoral plea was my sermon, and it's like, look, you you have to be seeing that the centrality of the word is non-negotiable, um, and church leaders have to make that. And I've heard all kinds of t people talk about. Well, we believe that too. It's like your entire ministry says otherwise. Um, you, you, if the Word of God is central, then why are you off sending your people to go to a professional counselor and have them pay that money? Uh, you know, I I really struggle. I don't I don't believe that. I, I struggle with all of these things that are outside the oversight of the local church and. One of our burdens is like we have a Christian classical school that we started, and but it's a ministry of Missio Dei Fellowship. It's not its own entity. Um, it, I, I think if we had made it its own entity, it would start out fine. But that mission creep, because now instead of being supported by the gifts 
of our members, it now has to be supported by donors. And once you start getting a few big buck donors and they'd like to say, hey, let's make a adjustment here or their son is a problem child, how hard are you going to come down that problem child if that guy threatens to pull funding? You know, that kind of situation becomes a real real challenge. Um, you, you talked about us trying to create up some kind of a Bible institute. I, I believe that the seminaries are ultimately going to go away. Um, I, I think the government will as, do it. Yeah, as we know, as we know them. Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you, cannot, you cannot withhold hold a biblical standard of marriage, sexual fidelity, um, gender and everything else at much longer. And keeping an accreditation. Yes, yeah. yep. and, and uh, 501c3 and all of those. It's hate speech. And so I think it's going to have to retreat back into the church, but I don't think that the churches are prepared for that. I don't think that – I don't want some of these guys um, thinking, okay, we can train our guys. And we, we've seen that too with like Acts 29 and some of those where they're really big on we'll, – we'll, We'll plant a church, and then that pastor develops leaders, and he, they start planting churches. But you find out that none of those guys have any training, formal training. And so it's usually about two or three generations of producing these pastors where you really see the, the absence of sound teaching. Um, the, the guy who started it was gifted, but the people he discipled um, – because he can only do so much. So here's here's another one. Um, I, I missions agencies. I struggle with that as well because uh, there's all kinds of them out there, and I think that newer ones tend to pop up because they're realizing the other ones have lost their way. But like Wycliffe translators, um, massive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars invested toward the translation, producing a translation of a Bible in a local dialect, and there's still no Bible. They still have, it's like, where is all of that money going? But but when they send it out to their donors, that's not what they talk about. They don't say, hey guys, we're really struggling because we, we're, we're pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars and we're not producing one. Um, it's, they keep producing it with their vision, like, look at, look at what we're doing. We got 30 people out there laboring for this thing, and we're like, yeah, we, we want that. We want that, so we're going to support it. But nobody is capable of actually penetrating the leadership to say, okay, so show me. You know, show me what actually is being accomplished. So going back to that missions group that we were involved in, um, I was actually on the ground working with a team in Tanzania, and I was teaching a group that was back to learn the material a second time, and none of them knew the material from the first time. And I'm like, so what did the team before me teach? If these guys are all looking at me with blank looks like, uh, I don't know. And at the end of it, they all, every one of the students failed the test that I gave them. They failed it. And they received certificates of completion, and there was photos taken of all the students proudly holding their certificates. And uh, once again, we're training up our future leaders. And I'm like, they failed. And it was basic stuff, basic, basic theology. They failed, but we passed them. But the only thing the donors got was, 
look, someplace we have no idea, these are poor pastors, we, through our generous gifts, have equipped them with the theology, we're building the church. And you're like, you didn't build squat. Um, you've actually sent them back into the, the field to pastor churches, and the same garbage is going to be reproduced time and time again. And, and no accountability. Hmm. Yeah. So, so what would be what would be your so for someone listening, what would be your bottom line on parachurch? Yeah. So, here's what I I guess what I'm saying to everyone myself would be, if you're hearing this and it's irking you, that's okay. I I mean, we don't know you, so. <laughs> uh, but if you are part, uh, if you are involved in supporting a parachurch organization. Work hard at asking really, really hard questions, and then when they give you a response, realize that if it's a decent-sized organization, they have people who are carefully crafting the response. Look at how much they actually objectively state uh, vers- that you can investigate versus, um, well, we just sent out 13 more teams. Yes, and how many how you know what was the quality? What was this? Look at the funds. The the biggest issue I think is it's a massive money cow. Uh, these and so before you think that this is a organization you should invest in, I would say to you you need to do hard hard digging, and you have to get to the point where you're almost obnoxious. Even offer to go and sit with the president of it and say, I'd like you guys to just open up your books, um, or I'd like to actually go and visit some of these things. And if you get pushback or vagary. Um, it, sh- it should at very least be your first flag. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, look at what is that. And then second is how tightly connected are they to a local church? Who are they accountable Um if you don't, if you don't have elders like Apologia Studios, um, James White is one of the pastors. Jeff Durbin, um, theologically, we would not be, be in line with them on certain things like eschatology, right? But the thing that I like about them is that they're they're all under the oversight of the elders of the church, yep. and it's like that's good. The elders will hold them in line with. They don't get to go off on their theology and just, per, you know pursue something. Even uh, Grace to You, uh, John's ministry, you know, it it has tight connections back still with the local church and it's tightly tied to that. So again, you you have accountability. Um, look for, I would say, look for the kind of accountability that's genuine accountability. Um, ask hard questions, but the last thing I would say is make sure that if you're supporting them that you're not robbing your local church in the process, if you say, "Well, we have, we have, um, I can give ten thousand a year, and you only give five to your church, so you can spread it around," I think you're robbing your church. Your church could be your church needs you, and and they and it and a lot of times a church can't do some of those parachurch things simply because they lack the funds. But if you would invest in the church. And you said, look, we need discipling. We need a better ministry of discipling. You actually might find yourself in a position where they could, if you're big enough, they could take you on and make you the guy that, let's set this up. But now we're going to do it in-house. We're going to do it with our people with that accountability. Um, the frustration, I, I I don't know if you face it, but I faced has been that is you know, you, you find a person that would really serve well at your church, but they're too busy off with 
two other ministries and their time, their energy, and their talent goes there. And the church then is left holding the bag. Yep. Yeah. No, I would, those would be my points. I would definitely agree with. And when you are asking them questions, uh, it's one I had learned from working with CareNet is when you start getting asked hard questions, you never state something in the negative. It's kind of like when you interview, you always turn your weakness into a positive. Right. Th that's what they have to do in answering your questions as a donor or potential donor. And so press, th what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, what does that actually mean that this is happening? 13 teams are being sent out. What's been the product of that? And get good at asking, what are your failures right now? And likely you're not going to get answered that question. but or, or you'll get it as, here's our failures and it's appeal for more money. Yeah. If only we had yeah, more money. Exactly. I, I think that the parachurch organization functions a lot like a government agency. The moment you start any agency in the government, it's there forever. And it gets more and more bloated, more and more administrative. How many people are actually on the ground? I mean, I can't prove um, I know World Vision is a t horrendous nonprofit. Uh, I'd like 10 cents of every dollar actually goes Oof. to what they're trying to do. Um, there's uh, organizations you can go on the web and search of how efficient are they with their donations. Um, but you look at like a Wycliffe, how many, how much of that money is going to the actual administrative uh, beast versus supporting some poor guy who's sitting in a hut cross-legged with the locals learning that unique dialect so they can convert that into a written text in the Bible. Uh, you, you, people would be shocked, absolutely And we're not shocked. denying the realities of the necessity for admin. No. I mean, that stuff has to be there, but there is a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. Yep, just, just to be. Well, I remember <laughs> uh, Insight for Living, that's Chuck Swindoll's. Uh, we went down to visit Insight for Living and I mean, we went down to uh, Chuck Swindell's church to just share. I was on staff at Grace, and we were going to just share some administrative things. Here's how we do ours. How does your church, which is a large church, how do you do yours? And see if we could learn from each other. And it was really a fruitful time. But afterwards, we went over to, at that point, they hadn't moved out to Colorado Springs, the Insight for Living uh, headquarters. And it, when I saw Chuck Swindell's office at church, it was a closet. <laughs> I mean, it was this tiny little room filled with books, and there was Chuck, and he was laboring on, at his desk, and he, hey, how are you guys doing? And we had a nice talk. He was just such a wonderful man. I went out to Insight for Living, and the opulence of his, 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 of his office that he almost never was in and the offices of others uh, at the upper level, they were massive. They were uh, mahogany, they were leather and everything else. And I thought, what a, what a stark difference between here's the local church, even though it's a large one, and it, it's doing the work. And this one is this separate entity. It's the radio ministry, and the money was was very, very evident and where that money was getting poured into. Yeah. Um, that was one of the reasons I backed out of actually doing support to any parachurch ministry. Um, I can't remember what sermon you preached, but it was it was challenging us kind of in the same manner where it, it was just asking like, what are your priorities and what you're looking at and what you support and what you give your time and your talents to? And I started to do some deep digging into it. And then I found out that 
Uh, a lot of them were maybe 50 cents to the dollar at best. And I'm like, why am I supporting these guys, right? Like I've been at this church for several years at this point. Why am I not just giving my money to them instead? And they're actually your local churches who's hopefully pouring their their effort and life into. And if they're not, then you're probably just in a church that you need to leave. Yeah. But um, amen to that. And so anything else you guys want to share? All right. So that is our little hot topic rant on parachurches. We, we, we did, we're, we're not here to say parachurch is evil in itself, but it is something that I think people should be very cautious of and slow to um, pour all of their time and energy and, and whatnot into. Agreed? Yeah, agreed. Okay, so as always, we ask you to like, share uh, on the various social media, Twitter, I don't know. I don't, I don't have my script in front of me. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Basically, just tell a friend. Mm-hmm.